Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Ron Rash, on his latest novel, The Caretaker. Ron Rash is the author of the Penn Faulkner Award finalist and New York Times bestselling novel Serena, in addition to the critically acclaimed novels The Risen, Above the Waterfall, The Cove, One Foot in Eden, Saints at the River and The World Made Straight, five collections of poems and seven collections of stories, among them Burning Bright, which won the 2010 Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award, Nothing Gold Can Say, a New York Times bestseller, and Chemistry and Other Stories, which was a finalist for the 2007 Penn Faulkner Award. And today we're here to talk about Ron's latest novel, which is The Caretaker. Ron, welcome to Little Atoms. It's good to be with you. First of all, then, Ron, would you tell me how you would describe this novel? It's a novel about, I think, in some ways, hard-worn hope. <laughs> hard-worn. It's, um, in some ways, my I think, my most hopeful novel. Uh, and I've kind of known sometimes as a pretty dark writer, but uh, this one, I kind of wanted to... Uh, William Faulkner once said that he believed most people were a little bit better than their circumstances ought to allow. And it's about, for the most part, most of the people in the book uh, striving to be a little bit better, trying to uh, to rise to the occasion, to do the right thing. So you've mentioned that it's uh, maybe a little bit lighter, but how else does this, how does this novel relate to your wider body of work? I think it's interesting. Uh, so many of the writers I love seem in their final books that they kind of want to give a little bit of almost like a gift a little bit of hope, I think, uh, to the audience. Um, I think of William Faulkner and his last book, The Reavers, is is in many ways his most comic, you know, lighter book. I think of uh, John Cheever with Falconer, uh, the hopefulness of that ending. And uh, we know that maybe The Tempest wasn't the last play that Shakespeare wrote, but I think late in his career, after you know the, the utter darkness of Lear, and some of the other tragedies, uh, that novel, I mean, or that that play has a kind of hopefulness that, I, and I think sometimes it's interesting to me that I think sometimes writers want to kind of give us that late in their careers. And so that was kind of, uh, as I started working on the novel, I realized maybe that was part of what I wanted to do in this one. So this novel has, there are three main characters, and we're going to talk about each of them in turn, but we're going to start with Jacob, Jacob Hampton. So tell us something about who he is. 
He's a young man. He's been raised in a, a family that in this small town community uh, is prominent. And he's a very, very, uh, in many ways, a very admirable young man, but he's a little bit impulsive. And he falls in love with a, a younger woman, a girl, almost uh, 16 years old, and uh, then rather rashly elopes with her. Then more problems ensue because he's conscripted into the Korean War. And um, so, yeah, I think he's he's that. And, and I, the novel actually starts with him. And I did that on purpose because I really wanted him and, and the reader to feel like I'm going to put him under a, a, you know, a dire enough situation where he really kind of gets to the core of who he is and what matters to him. Tell us something about both his parents, Cora and Daniel, and their background, his family background. Well, his parents, uh, and and this is very important to me, I, I never want my characters to be one-dimensional. I mean, because I don't think that's being true to the humans. I think we all are contradictory. We all have our impulses. Um, but they're, they're people who are very aware of their place in the community. They see themselves as uh, a little bit of noblesse oblige. Uh, but they've also really done some commendable things in the 1930s during the Depression. They've uh, they run a sawmill and um, a store, so they've helped a number of families in a time when no one else could or was willing to. So they've done a lot of good, but they also have a very strong sense of uh, what they think is best for the community and ultimately for their son. So. When uh, Jacob decides to uh, elope with this young woman who is from a what they consider an inferior class, uh, they go to uh, pretty horrific levels to try to prevent it from continuing the relationship, the marriage, and that to me was uh, really interesting. To and I didn't really get get into that part of the novel until later. I didn't want them to be come off as demonic, but uh, certainly uh, I think their actions. Are, are really frightening uh, how far people will go and, and doing it in their minds justified because they see it as an act of love. They're saving their son from this relationship, this marriage that he will ultimately regret. And they have, there's loss in there oh, yeah. as well. Yes. Uh, and I think that that's, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's a very important part of it. And I think it makes them more human. They've had two uh, two children, two young, uh, two daughters, and the daughters have died before Jacob comes a few years after that. So they've already lost two children. And, and now they're they're dealing with uh, losing Jacob, if not in war, in this relationship, because they've alienated him and his wife, Naomi, so much that uh, they feel that, in a sense, they've lost their last child. And I think that, I hope that makes the reader in some ways more sympathetic to them, uh, even as uh, they're doing these things that I think the reader's going to uh, define uh, at times reprehensible. There's a, a short section at the beginning of Jacob in Career, which is it's short, but it's very vivid. Tell us something about his experiences in Career, but also just about, I guess, just about writing this section, about researching it. Well, uh, in the United States, the Korean War is just not talked about much. Uh, it's, it's kind of the forgotten war. But I had a relative, an old, older relative who fought in Korea. He was a Marine and he was in some of the fiercest fighting. And so as I was growing up, I would hear stories about what that was like. And, and I would just remember the things that he talked about was the ferocity of the fighting, but also the, how cold 
uh, the Korean climate was, even for someone such as himself who grew up in the Appalachian Mountains. And um, I wanted that scene, I, I just wanted that scene to be as as uh, dramatic and, and vivid as possible. I wanted it to be a scene where I think we see Jacob in a sympathetic light, because I think uh, in some ways, if we don't have that opening scene where we see him that way, but I really wanted to to really give a sense of uh, of what it would be like to fight in Korea and to, uh, to as I say, just get a, a scene as, as vivid as possible, to, to draw the reader in into the novel and to start caring about certain characters. So tell us something about Naomi then. Who is she? Well, she's a young, obviously very young. She's uh, comes from a family that poor, but they are, her mother's died, uh, farm family. She's not educated. Uh, she had to quit school in third grade, which would not have been that unusual at this time, 1951, United States, particularly in a rural, very rural area. But she um, she's bright. Uh, she's she's attractive and has drawn uh, as she's working as a maid in this hotel. She and Jacob, the, the young man, fall in love. But she um, she has her own uh, flaws. Certainly, um, I, I think uh, the, her motivations at times are a little bit suspect, even though I think we ultimately sympathize with her. But she's uh, she has her has certain strengths about her certain illusions that uh, that she will reveal. But uh, I hope she's a memorable character. That There's certain moments where she shows her immaturity. I mean, she's only 16 years old, but, uh, but I think there's a certain strength there. So Jacob's parents obviously think that she is not good enough for their son. And they have, I mean, they're a, a well-to-do family. And as far as they're concerned, although, I mean, it does sort of turn out that, you know, Naomi's family are more respectable than they might seem. But they think this is a, a poor family from another state and therefore it's not good enough. But she's also looked down upon by other people in the town as well. Tell us something about why she's rejected by the townspeople as well. Well, this is interesting because I, I think one of the uh, interesting things about Americans is that we don't like to talk about class, but it's very much a part of American culture. And um, even in a, this small, you know, fairly rural area, small town in, in Appalachia, there's a sense of class divisions. She's seen as uh, certainly, I think, uh, being a, a lower class, but also as a kind of interloper. I mean, in a sense, it's almost as if uh, the, the town feels like, well, Jacob being from this, you know, the most prominent family in the community should marry someone from within the community. So she's an outsider that way. The fact that she's not from an uh, economic level, societal level uh, adds to that. So I think that those those things uh, kind of show sometimes uh, the ugliness of uh, particularly in sometimes uh, small towns, uh, you know, that that sense of being insular and not wanting someone from the outside to be part of it. So she comes from just over the border in Tennessee. Her father has a, a small holding, a small farm there that he's working. And this is the novel is set in 1951. But this farm feels like in a lot of ways, you know, that sort of life would not have changed for hundreds and hundreds of years. Obviously, you know, not necessarily in America, but thinking back to just like, you know, European peasant stock working the land. What would life have been like on a small holding like this when Naomi was growing up in the 40s and 50s? It would have been very much the way I depicted it. Actually, my mother's 
family were farmers and, and farmers about the same economic status as uh, Naomi's family or her father's holdings. So it would have been there would have been um, a couple of crops that would bring in some money, uh, very often a small tobacco allotment. But a lot of the um, the food would be uh, just for the family's sustenance. Uh, I mean, that's one thing I remember in my childhood was going out and uh, digging up potatoes, uh, picking string beans. Uh, there would be some livestock. So th- these, you know, these people were very were very self sufficient. They 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 were able to uh, get through times where the, you know even if they did not have they had very little money. Uh, they were still able to sustain themselves through what they grew, uh, the the animals, you know, that they uh, husbanded. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Ron Rash and we're talking about his new novel, The Caretaker. And Ron, well, let's talk about The Caretaker of the title. The titular character of the novel is the third of our triumvirate of characters, uh, Blackburn Gant. Tell us something about who he is. He is the caretaker of the town's cemetery, the community cemetery. Um, He's a 
when he was a child, he contracted polio that caused him partial paralysis in a leg and also facial paralysis on one side, one side of his face. And because of that, uh, because of uh, uh, his face, uh, he's become kind of uh, become an outsider. Uh, he's very self-conscious about his appearance and has actually become the community, in a sense, has given him the job of being the caretaker of the cemetery. So he, since the age of 16, he's been up there living in a in a cottage beside there. He caretakes, he digs the graves, looks after the cemetery and the church. So he's he's kind of, uh, he's living in a sense in the, um, in kind of in the, the world of the dead in the novel. Uh, he's now, he, his one friend has been Jacob, who's been very kind to him as they were growing up. Uh, but now Jacob has gone to Korea and has asked Blackburn to look after Naomi. And so in a sense, he's all right now, not only the caretaker of the uh, dead, but also the living. I think people nowadays have forgotten polio and its and its impact. But what would have been the impact of polio on a on a small town like this in the 1950s? Oh, it would have been tremendous. Uh, there was, uh, I mean, I, I can actually, I was alive when the uh, finally the you know the the vaccine, the salt vaccine uh, started to be given out. I can remember that, but I can also remember a number of people, including children, who who contracted polio, and there was a great fear. I mean, people would you know they they weren't sure about how it'd be transmitted. Uh, very often, people were afraid to go to to swimming pools, uh, places maybe uh, that were public. So, yeah, and, and I can remember you know, the fear of it. And I thought in a way that tied in a little bit to COVID. Uh, but I think uh, the polio epidemic is something that uh, was was so frightening. I think uh, because uh, so often it, it, it happened to children and, and, and uh, you know, a child could sometimes die, sometimes be paralyzed, sometimes just long term health problems such as Blackburn. Well, it's funny you compared it to COVID because obviously, like people don't seem to like vaccines anymore. So maybe you know, maybe one day polio will be back. Well, uh, that that would be a a real horror because uh, anybody who's ever seen, a, particularly, uh, th- there were certain hospitals and you you would see a row of children in iron lungs, and I can remember that image from my childhood and just uh, just the fear as a visceral fear for a child, particularly that uh, to end up like that. Tell us something more about the friendship between Jacob and Blackburn. Why has Jacob taken it upon himself to become friends with him? Well, they've been close. The cemetery is adjacent to the the store and the uh, the uh, house that Jacob lives in. So he he's kind of gotten to know Blackburn because Blackburn's family lived near there, and then Blackburn becomes the caretaker. But I, 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 Jacob's uh, very good-hearted. I mean, I think he he has a sense of empathy. And he looks after Blackburn in his way, establishes this friendship. And um, I think for me, in many ways, this this is a book about male friendship. Uh, it's about other things as well, but certainly that and a uh, certain sense of, uh, as, as Naomi says, uh, Blackburn would never use the word love, but he really does. He does love Jacob. I mean, he he is close to Jacob and Naomi. Those are really the only two people that uh, Blackburn, his family has moved away. He's been left there. But uh, it's also a book uh, that ultimately there, there becomes a kind of rivalry between them uh, that tests their friendship, uh, certain temptations. And uh, to me, that was where, the, for me, the novel gets interesting because 
when you you have this these characters who are close and yet uh you start to have this strife uh you know it adds to, to how how will this be resolved when blackburn first starts working at the uh as the caretaker at the cemetery he is um at the graveyard he's he's taken under the wing by an older man wilkie who is going to leave and like pass on the torch to him and he's filled with all of this Great. The the book's very vivid on the um the sort of lore of the graveyard and and about gravestones and things. Tell me something about the uh, about the lore of the graveyard. I, I wanted this story to work as a uh, in in some ways as as a ghost story of sorts. When I was working on it, I knew that, and this is not giving away too much uh, because early on, I think we find it uh, there. Uh, I had an image of a woman kneeling at night, dressed uh, in mourning clothes. And she uh, is is looking, uh, kneeling beside a gravestone with her name on it. And uh, that image, uh, my my novels tend to start with a single image, and that that image, you know, kind of uh, ran through that. But it, I'm, I'm I was also just fascinated. I've always kind of been fascinated with graveyards and cemeteries. I, I think in part because when I was a young, when I was a child, my grandparents' farm, and this the setting of this novel is is my grandparents' farm because there, my grandparents' farm there was a there was a church up above it. And a cemetery. And when I was a child, sometimes after a storm, the uh, uh, you know a wreath, some flowers would fall over or be blown over onto our land, and and I would be sent up there to place them back on the other side of the cemetery. I wouldn't know which particular grave, but the idea was that, you know just to put them back over there. And even as a child, I had a sense a little you know that as I I would put these items back through the barbed wire from our land into the cemetery of, of a, a kind of almost being a conduit between the living and the dead. And uh, that image had stayed with me for years, obviously, and still. And uh, so when I started working on the novel, but also I just I, I just became fascinated with uh, certain the terminology, the feel thoughts, uh, certain Im- what certain images, uh, what they mean, and and also the fundamentals, uh, uh, how, how would someone dig a grave? And, and that was interesting because in uh, the, the area of uh, Appalachia, where where my mother's family, when my father died, uh, the men in the community actually dug the grave, and I, I found that to be a very moving ritual, an act of love. They would do this, and so, I, in, in a way, I, I kind of wanted to bring some of the things that had come out of the uh, culture that I knew into the novel. But I, also, it's just interesting. I think sometimes uh, what what can be unearthed. I'm fascinated with that as well. And some of the rituals, uh, the idea, for instance, uh, in this novel of how people would bring certain items that they thought the uh, loved one might in some way miss, you know, a thimble, a pocket knife. And uh, so I, I really kind of got in that. But I'm also, I think, the idea that this is a, there's a sense that there's something mysterious, maybe even uh, mystical going on in this graveyard. Can I something more about the setting then? The, the book is set in Blowing Rock in North Carolina which is a real place. Tell us what it would have been like in 1951. Well, it would have been like a, a lot of uh, places in the North Carolina mountains at that time. Um, Blowing Rock would have been a place where particularly people from um, lower elevations, people from maybe Charlotte, Charleston, in the heat of the summer, they would come up there to escape the heat. And But at the same time, uh, most of the people who lived there would be farmers uh, in, in that in and around that community. And uh, Blowing Rock was, for many of these people, that would be where they would go to get clothing, uh, articles of clothing, uh, 
maybe uh, if they needed seeds, hose, shovels, you know, whatever. So that would be a, a place where where they would go. But um, it would be a place that particularly as you got, besides a, a few months in the summer, would be largely uh, very quiet. And it would just be uh, local people, people who had lived very often, as in the case of my family, for generations in that area. One aspect of this book that became more and more interesting to me as I worked on the drafts was that 1951 would have been one of the last places, at least in the rural United States, where almost all communication would be face-to-face. You know, many people didn't have telephones. And I thought how much more dramatic that is than today, where uh, so much of our communication is done on a screen or through a screen. And as I got deeper into the novel, I really wanted to emphasize that more. You know, you have these you know, dramatic moments where someone will lie to another person face to face. So much would be revealed, not just in their words, but the way the words were said. And as I, you know, it, it, it struck me kind of interesting that in a way I'm writing about an almost obsolete or dying way of communication. And so to finish this off, can I get you to read us a bit? Okay, I'll do this page, yeah. In the trees, the season's last cicadas sang. Their hulls, nearly weightless, had littered the back of the cemetery for weeks. Now the insects themselves fell. Their bodies had a prettiness to them, all green at one moment, then tinged silver or blue if you turned them. Sometimes they lived a decade underground before emerging or so some people claimed. Yesterday, Blackburn had walked down to the Ledford's home place and found the galas ripe. He liked how apples arrived at different times. Sweet galas first, tart Granny Smith's last. Some apples had already fallen. Wasp and yellow jackets clung to the bruised fruit. The two apples Blackburn picked up had been just right, satisfying crunch white gleam inside, bright as their taste. He'd always enjoyed this time of year, like the world was wanting to be especially generous before cold weather's hardships. A few more warm days and the air would cool, cleansed of summer's haze. So I've been talking to Ron Rash. We've been talking about his new novel, The Caretaker, which is out in the UK from Canongate. Ron, thanks so much for taking the time to share it with me. Well, thank you. I hope I did okay. These things are so... <laughs> this episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented, and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by ACAST and published by 89Up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.